This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. We're going to be talking about a lot of issues impacting agriculture. In segment two, here in about 15 minutes, we're going to check in with Josh Linville, the Stonex Vice President of Fertilizer, about the volatility that that market has seen recently, particularly on the urea side. And then in segment three, we're going to check in with Todd Neely of DTN. Ag has been featured in Capitol Hill. It's been in Congress and it's been in the courts. Todd will bring us a legal update of ag case around the country here in segment three. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk with David Widmer. He's a partner at Agricultural Economic Insights based in Illinois, and he's been doing some research on corn usage. Of course, we're seeing these high prices. How is that impacting downstream the end user? Are they actually cutting back based on price response? We'll talk to David about those issues. But before we get into all of that, we want to turn our focus to the West Coast, way out in California, where they are revamping, or I should say reevaluating the impact of their clean air policies. Joining me today to talk about it is Chris Bliley. He's a senior vice president of regulatory affairs at Growth Energy. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Good morning and glad to join you. Let's talk first about who is doing this reevaluation of clean air. Chris, this is coming from CARB. Can you tell us a little bit about what CARB is? Uh, sure. CARB is the California Air Resources Board. Uh, it's a 16-member uh, board for the state, and their primary objective is to protect public health from effects of air pollution, as well as to develop programs and specific actions to address climate change. All right. And it's those specific actions that right now they are looking to evaluate. Chris, what are they doing here in 2022? Well, so as part of their actions to address climate change, the, the two focuses for us as, as biofuel producers and, and really anybody in the fuel space is that they are addressing greenhouse gas standards for vehicles, and they also various things related to their own low-carbon fuel program that requires the use of low-carbon fuels in the state. And so recently, they've had a couple different proposals available for public comment. First was their advanced clean car standard. And what this does, the primary sort of purpose of their advanced clean cars uh, to regulation is to require all zero emission vehicle sales by 2035. Essentially, they're setting very tight emission standards for all of their vehicles, and they're modeling that all of the vehicles sold in 2035 will be zero emission vehicles. That said, liquid fuels, uh, internal combustion engines will be on, on California roads for decades. So it's imperative that they do things in the interim to address those cars on the road today. Well, I think that's interesting. This advanced clean cars to proposal, when they're talking zero emissions vehicles, do they mean almost exclusively electric or are they leaving room to account for lower carbon intensity biofuels as well? Well, so that's the key. That's the key point. Uh, clearly, they have pretty ambitious goals for electric and uh, you know hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and others. But I think that was really our key message is that with low carbon biofuels, you can get immediate reductions today by, by approving E15. That's something that is still outstanding in the state of California, as well as to, to incentivize and require the use of flex fuel vehicles in conjunction with E85. And using an FFV with you know low carbon biofuels like ethanol and, and a higher blend, you can get to those zero emission vehicle standards, and you can get those benefits you know in the in the very near term without significant deployment of infrastructure. And so we really encourage the state, regardless of their ambitious goals for you know electrification, in the interim you can get those emissions benefits immediately by moving to higher biofuel blends like E15, E85, and even you know in advanced cars you can maximize efficiency through the use of a mid-level ethanol blend that has high octane like an E30. 
Yeah, those mid-level blends offer a lot of exciting opportunities when paired with those higher compression engines. But Chris, I want to circle back to a point you made there about flex fuel vehicles and E85. Growth Energy submitted some comments to CARB on this proposal, and in that you included a chart showing the volume of E85 sold. And in California, it jumped huge in 2021. Was that a policy shift or were consumers in that state just reacting to the value at the pump? Well, it, it, it's really, I, I think, a little bit of combination. So they have a low-carbon fuel standard, so certainly low-carbon biofuels like E85 are heavily, you know, heavily promoted through that low-carbon fuel standard because, you know, that, that really is the intent, is to use these lower-carbon fuels. But I think the, the key point that you hit on is the value that people are seeing at the pump. You know, I was just in California a couple months ago, I paid, you know, 4.19 a gallon for E85 where regular was just about $6. And that price dis- disparity has continued to cl- to grow. I mean, I've heard reports of 2 and $3 less per gallon for E85. And so consumers are really seeing that value a- at the pump. They're seeing it particularly at this time of high gas prices. And so I think that is also contributing heavily to the growth of E85 in California, but certainly the low carbon fuel standard has has had a role to play there as well. Chris, CARB, California, they often work earlier than most other states or the federal government with these types of policies. Is there the possibility that this work they're doing could spill over as a blueprint for federal regulation or policy? Well, California has always has always been a leader uh, in environmental regulation, and so their car standards are certainly, you know, out of the gate. Uh, and I, you know, on the federal side, we anticipate that there will be a lot of work done probably in the next year on the on the federal side on vehicle standards as well. And so it'll be interesting to see how the how the U.S. government uh, reacts to what California has proposed, whether they'll be that ambitious. Uh, but certainly this administration has talked uh, quite a bit about, uh, y- you know, electrification and addressing climate. And I think our message is really the same. You can get immediately, immediate greenhouse gas and consumer cost savings benefits by moving to higher biofuel blends. Uh, you know, just, it, just even with E15, I, I just I just was in Illinois earlier this week and paid 81 cents less per gallon. I mean, that's real savings at a time, additionally, when ethanol is, you know, nearly a 50 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, saves money and improves the planet. Chris, that E15 in California is the low hanging fruit. Do you think they're going to get that approved here over the summer or this fall? Well, that's certainly what we're pushing to do because you get, as I said, you know, we're seeing a number of locations around the country at, you know, 70 to 90 cents cheaper per gallon uh, as we speak, you know, and heading into the 4th of July. Uh, The emissions benefits are clear. Uh, You know, we've done, uh, we're working through the regulatory process with the California Air Resources Board. So we're hopeful that they'll move as quickly as possible to get that approved. I bet it's not just biofuels producers. I bet it's fuel consumers in California hoping they get that approved shortly. Chris Bliley, Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs at Growth Energy. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Great to be on. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA talking with Josh Linville about fertilizer when the show returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up how many acres are you keeping an eye on another pair of eyes could be very helpful in protecting your roi especially ones that are highly trained and that's what you'll get with an fs crop specialist they can spot issues you might not even know you have using the latest technology including thermal drone and ndvi imaging then they can get an early treatment plan started Contact your local FS Crop Specialist to learn more about our crop scouting services. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. 
the average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are kicking off an all-new program called The Monthly Grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 12th for our big kickoff. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will share all of the details surrounding The Monthly Grind. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 12th. It's a show you don't want to miss. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Yeah, we're going to talk next about the fertilizer market. We've seen lots of volatility in that market for the past year, and it's continuing. It is one of those things that just continues to to drag on. This past week, we saw the UAN market come into focus as the uh, International Trade Commission took a look at potential allegations of dumping, basically alleging that uh, we had Russia and Trinidad and Tobago selling UAN fertilizer in the United States at less than the cost it took to produce it, which they say is cheating American producers out of market share. And uh, the idea is we might see some tariffs coming down the line. Here in just a little bit, we will be checking in with Josh Linville. He is the Stonex Director of Fertilizer. And uh, Josh will be joining us here, Hopefully in just a minute. Before we get to Josh, though, we did have some other nudes percolating, and I don't think this is a shock to too many of our listeners here tuning in today, but we are continuing to see the broad government apparatus fight inflation. Of course, we're seeing that in the Federal Reserve offices as they continue to hike interest rates. Most recently here in mid-June, we had that three quarters of a percent, 75 basis point increase in the rate, and the Fed is saying we really want to tackle inflation. Jerome Powell was out yesterday, came out with some comments. He said he believes the U.S. economy is in strong shape and that the Federal Reserve has the power using their their fiscal tools to avert a recession. However, there was some reports this morning out of Bloomberg that said a lot of the battle the Fed is fighting might be undermined by some efforts in the states to keep their citizens happy here in this period of high inflation. Um, Notably, California is in the news. Policymakers yesterday in that state again announced tax rebates of up to $1,050 per family 
The idea being we're going to credit folks back some money that they can use to, uh, to you know, tear down these costs a little bit, or at least make the, the cost impact a little bit less likely. They said over the weekend in California that they will be announcing a relief package. They're going to spend nine and a half billion dollars. These will be in the form of tax rebates. The checks uh, will amount, will range, I should say, from $200 to $1,050, uh, with that $1,050 being the cap. And uh, they are saying uh, a lot of other states are modeling similar types of measures. Colorado, Maine, Indiana, and Delaware are all looking at or in the process of implementing some kind of measure to help their citizens pay for high-priced goods. Now, economists say that, well, when you're giving out money, that's kind of creating a lot of the same situation we had from 2020 on to today, where we've gave consumers lots and lots of money and said, spend it. The economy depends on you spending that income and helping drive demand. And it did. And we drove demand tremendously with all of this income that folks had under various COVID relief plans. And it heated up the economy and the Fed would say overheated the economy. And now we need these interest rates to to rise and help slow down, you know, kind of kind of slow down that overall demand. So if we've got states then on the flip side saying we know prices are high, here's some money to go back out there and continue buying the same things you were buying. The economists, at the Fed say, well, then the the market isn't getting the information it needs. Consumers are still demanding and in a tight supply situation, which, of course, is what we have in nearly every commodity. We are seeing that type of uh, of impact play out longer term. So we will be watching this. A lot of these, again, it's still very early to say that California one appears to be the most firm. And uh, we'll just see what comes from these other states. However, the Fed is going to be watching that very closely. We have some other factors going on today in the world. Speaking more broadly, as we hope to connect with Josh here in just a bit, we are also seeing the crypto market breakdown have some spillover impacts. It's been estimated that as the crypto market has collapsed and potentially lost as much as $2 trillion across the various types of cryptocurrencies, and here we're thinking Bitcoin, you know, we're thinking Luna, we're thinking Ethereum, all of these, you know, the alphabet soup really of, of cryptocurrencies that were created here over the past four years, as that $2 trillion has effectively evaporated in market value, it's changing the way investors are managing their risk. And they're looking more closely at how they could perhaps find better ways to manage it. Now, we'll see how this plays out longer term. A lot of these are, are still being watched right now as these traders anticipate, or I should say try to anticipate, what could be coming here globally um, in the markets. This is a, a lot of different stuff we are watching right there in the trade. We've got some other news, and this is fertilizer related. We'll keep the topic on fertilizer. And this is an appeal that was made on Moroccan phosphate duties. There has been a 19% countervailing tariff put on Moroccan phosphate fertilizers. Of course, this is not new. This is the tariff that was put into place just about a year ago from the International Trade Commission. And it's under scrutiny. Uh, Chris Clayton over at DTN wrote a story yesterday talking about how Stephen Vaden for the U.S. Court of International Trade was really sympathetic to arguments from the Moroccan fertilizer company OCP North America that they, the, they, the ITC, the folks who put tariffs on goods coming into this country, did not factor in all the reasons for phosphorus imports increasing from 2017 through 2019. That was the window that the ITC was looking at when they were alleging that OCP was dumping fertilizer from Morocco here in this country. It was just that two-year time span. And Chris goes on, he, he recognizes that uh, DTN highlights their, their fertilizer tracking that they do across many, many different systems, and they found MAP and DAP prices are 40, almost 50% more than a year ago. MAP is from $720 a ton up to 1058 And this hearing that Judge Vaden was talking to these lawmakers from the ITC and OCP North America lasted three hours. And the original petition against the phosphate uh, tariff 
import tariffs was under discussion. And then, of course, there were there were lots of other attorneys. This is a very legal issue and related fertilizer companies were keeping track of this as well. Of course, a lot of different stakeholders are involved with a decision like this. And it's worth noting that Judge Vaden, who is the, the ITC judge, he is a former general counsel for the USDA. He served under the Trump administration in that rule, in that role rather. And I, I think the consensus is he generally has an understanding of the use requirements of fertilizer. However, that isn't really what this case takes into consideration. Basically, this court is being asked to rule on OCP's appeal of the countervailing tariffs. They're asking that these tariffs be dropped, and they're just looking at effectively market concentration and price levels. It's not necessarily what matters to the end user. The question is what's coming from the fertilizer producer that is perhaps not leveling the playing field? How are they short-shifting domestic producers. And in the case of OCP, in addition to the case that is currently pending at the ITC for uh, 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 fertilizer production UAN from Russia and Trinidad and Tobago, the argument is effectively that the governments of those countries subsidize the production of this product, usually a commodity, in this case it's fertilizer, in so doing they're pushing that fertilizer out of their border, out of their countries, and then the phrase is dumping in the world of international trade, selling it below cost into a foreign market. And it's, it's a really hard thing to keep track of because one person's dumping is another person's finding a deal, right? If it's a really cheap product that's coming in, we're using it in this country on fertilizer farmers, of course, are the end user farmers benefited from these countries subsidizing fertilizer production. We got basically a, a cheap put on fertilizer as they were dumping their citizens' money into producing it and then shipping it out and selling it at a loss. Now, the idea is these companies could grow market share and these countries could secure future exports by locking in consumers right now. And that's the, the rationale behind penalizing dumping, even if it is perhaps good in the short term for the end users here. The idea being, if these foreign companies are being subsidized and are undercutting American producers, then American domestic producers can't keep up. They exit the business. Now, all of a sudden, all of our supply for the particular good that's under discussion is coming from a foreign power. And as we saw with the outbreak of COVID in 2020, as we saw with the outbreak of war between Russia and Ukraine, when you're relying on a foreign country to provide the goods and services you need to complete a project or perhaps to feed your people, it makes sense to ensure that there is domestic capacity here in order to meet that. So we saw this, uh, we, we'll see these discussions continue to percolate in Washington, D.C. The current breach of trade cases currently out there tells us that there's, there's not a lot of seeing eye to eye in the international stage. So these discussions will be continuing for some time. Folks, stick around. I apologize we couldn't get Josh in that segment, but we will be talking to Todd Neely of DTN here when AOA returns about Ag's cases in the courtroom. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are kicking off an all-new program called The Monthly Grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 12th for our big kickoff. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will share all of the details surrounding The Monthly Grind. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 12th. It's a show you don't want to miss. 
You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at our market trade so far here on the day today, we see that grains have come off their highs a little bit. The soy complex still remains firm to moderately strong. Wheat market also looking fairly firm, while the corn market... We see July a little bit firm with new crop contracts a little bit lower. Now with first notice day of July, grain futures set for Thursday. July premiums of corn, beans, bean meal, and bean oil all continue to look bullish, suggesting little or no delivery threats out there. Now wheat prices have taken a beating the past six weeks, and there is some question as to whether September prices of winter wheat can find support near their three-month low. So far, we are seeing some decent strength here, though, again, in the wheat markets today. And really, we've seen uh, just a lot of trader attention remaining focused on the U.S. weather forecast this week until they have the USDA data in hand tomorrow. The uh, seven-day precipitation map continues to show a chance of widespread rain across the Corn Belt over the next week. Today's map is more blue and red color than yesterday's edition. However, the dry region over Oklahoma and Texas has expanded as well. Now, again, we have USDA's quarterly grain stocks reports and acreage numbers out tomorrow. Going to create plenty of volatility in the market trade. Right now, July corn up six and a quarter, 765 at three quarters. New crop December down six and a quarter, 653. July beans up 14 and a quarter, 1678. November eight and a quarter higher, 1470 at three quarters. Bead meal July up 490 a ton, 460. July bean oil up 94 points, 7303. September Chicago wheat six higher, 942. September Kansas City wheat up six and three quarters at 997. And September spring wheat currently up one and a half, 1042 and a quarter. July hogs down 32, 109.60. June live cattle 70 higher at 137. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 54. So basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, thanks for tuning in today, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to turn our focus to the court system right now. Todd Neely of DTN joins us today. Todd, thanks for talking to us. Glad to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Boy, this year we have seen a lot of interest at courts, really at all different levels of the federal court system, taking a look at agriculture cases. Todd, I want to start with sort of the basket of cases that Bayer and Monsanto were involved in before the Supreme Court. Let's go back to last week, the Monsanto v. Hardiman decision there at the Supreme Court. Todd, what happened with that one? Yeah, Mike, well, you know, um, Bayer has been very active in the courts, uh, going challenging a lot of the, the verdicts and the cancer rulings that we've seen across the country, primarily in California. Um, one of those cases was the Hardeman case, and it was argued during that case that, um, you know, perhaps Bayer was not required to follow a state label. Um, and instead, really, the question that was raised, if, if, if the EPA is requiring companies to, to abide by certain uh, label requirements and those sorts of things, especially when it comes to Roundup. Um, but, you know, the court had the court had given uh, Bear some time really to really look at this. And I think one thing that's really come of this, and Bear's looking at this closely as well, is that um, you know, is does the court is is Bear have to follow what EPA uh, says? I mean, and it's not just you know, it's not just a question of Bear, but we've got a lot of companies out there that do a lot of 
uh, product development. And the question at hand is whether the states can can, can require a certain label requirements and, and whether those supersede the federal requirements. And I think what we saw in Hardeman, uh, the court was not interested in this case. Um, and it's, it's really kind of interesting because uh, when you look at this, we have two different things going on. We have the EPA, uh, you know, putting companies through this regulatory process to, to get products to market. And then we have states like California that um, are saying that that, that Bayer is uh, is liable for any, uh, you know, for any damage that, that uh, can be proven when, when people use these products. And so it's a real conflict in that particular case. And, uh, you know, it kind of carried over to this week when, uh, the court rejected another uh, round of petition by the company. And so far, uh, I think companies like Bayer are going to really start to take a look at, uh, you know, what the future is for these kind of products, whether they can rely on federal agencies uh, and, and the guidance that federal agencies give or not. And I think, you know, obviously that is the crux of this matter. Who has top billing? Is it the EPA or is it the states? And I'm guessing, Todd, since the court didn't pick up that Hardeman case or they didn't pick up the, the Bayer case from Monday, that they're saying states supersede the feds. Is that how I'm supposed to interpret this? Yeah, you know, that's interesting, Mike. I think I think that's probably a fair assessment, although, um, you know, this is, it really does raise a lot of questions because, you know, these companies put a lot of money into development into these products and they have to abide by so much of, of uh, the regulatory landscape to get these products to market. And, um, you know, if, if states are allowed to, to go a certain direction, like we've seen with, with the Monsanto cases, um, you know, these companies that really don't have a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's just not a lot that they can rely on. You know, if we're going to have product liability cases like this uh, continuing in the, in the state court level, um, I think it's really going to make it difficult for Bayer and other companies to really invest a whole lot in future products. And I think, um, you know, it's, you know, we still have Roundup used in agriculture. And that's one thing that Bayer is really, uh, has made really clear that they're, they're still going to, uh, you know, keep that available to farmers at the moment. Um, but what the future might look like in that, I don't know. But definitely the states, you know, we've had a lot of things come up before the Supreme Court lately, states versus federal, you know, where the state power lies and where the federal power lies. And this is certainly no different when it comes to agriculture. It is, Todd. In your most recent story about the cases coming from the Supreme Court, you mentioned that this ruling came after the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California rejected, they just rejected EPA's analysis determining that glyphosate is not likely carcinogenic, and then they ordered EPA to reevaluate their conclusions. Todd, does EPA take direction from judges to reevaluate the work they've done? Uh, yeah, you know, Mike, this is quite common. You know, we've seen a lot of a lot of these cases sent back to the courts. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court does that all the time. We will send it back. Um, you know, maybe a, a particular lawsuit was going through the court system, and for whatever reason, it ended up in the Supreme Court with a larger question. Um, but a lot of times, these cases are sent back to these courts to resume. And so, I think, um, you know, it's interesting. The Ninth Circuit's uh, quite famous for for doing these sorts of things and sending uh, sending cases uh, back to EPA back to other you know other agencies uh, to deal with and I think um, you know it's interesting because a lot of the science you see the science that EPA puts out and a lot of international bodies that deal with these questions as well uh, have found that glyphosate uh, which is the roundup chemical uh, is safe for you know relatively safer there's no direct link to human cancers and so it's it's a real conflict going on. And I think it's something that uh, Bear was probably hopeful that, that it would get an answer out of the Supreme Court, at least one way or the other. And that isn't the case here. So um, we're, still, we're kind of back to square one at this point, you know, kind of relying on uh, EPA. Right, right. At the end of the day, we're relying on EPA. Unless a judge says, no, we're not going to use that, then we'll rely on the states. It'll be interesting to see where this progresses in the courts going forward, Todd. As you mentioned, a lot of other companies have a dog in this fight. But with the case of Bayer and Monsanto, with the Supreme Court rejecting Hardeman, and then this uh, most recent one here on Monday, is that the end of uh, their challenges in front of the Supreme Court? Um, you know, Mike, I, I'm not so sure. We do have another case uh, out of Georgia in the 11th Circuit. Um, you know, and what happens, these cases make it to the court, the Supreme Court, when uh, 
there's a conflict between different uh, different courts, different circuits. Um, and so there's it's a comparison case out of Georgia. And so I think Bayer is still uh, hopeful that that case might uh, bring up uh, some some matters for the Supreme Court to deal with. So I think we might still at least have one more case. There's a lot of other uh, a lot of other cases going on, trials that have been had. Uh, Bayer's one, I believe, the four cases in a row at the at the district level. Um, so it's it's not necessarily over. I you know I do think for the time being it will be, but um, you know maybe in the upcoming year we'll know more about that 11th Circuit case. All right. We'll keep watching what's happening down there in Georgia. In the meantime, Todd, we had beef in front of the Supreme Court. Well, it denied in front of the Supreme Court. Can you talk to us about uh, the RCAF decision that was also rendered on Monday? Uh, Yeah, Mike, you know, uh, RCAF has been uh, has been pursuing USDA uh, when it comes to the matter of the beef beef checkoff and whether uh, it's government sponsored speech or, or otherwise. And so they've They've continued to fight USDA on this. Uh, I think they have a lot of concerns about, um, you know, the cutoff between government speech and private speech, and and how state level checkoffs operate and those sorts of things. It's a it's a rather broad issue. Um, they've actually got another lawsuit that's pending uh, that's similar to the ones the court rejected uh, earlier this week. Um, and so it's you know I I think this is something that's going to continue to play out in the courts at least for the meantime. I know. Uh, RCAF and NCBA are completely on opposite ends of this, which is a really interesting dichotomy there. Um, you know, both uh, both organizations put out statements this week, and so I think the back and forth is going to kind of continue between them. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions, I guess, about about how uh, the checkoff is run. It's it's a very it's a very good program for for the cattle industry. Um, and I think that we're still going to continue to see a lot of questions asked about it. And it's just kind of a natural, it's kind of an interesting situation. Normally you, uh, within an industry, you don't see this big of a, of a divide, but uh, that's what we have. Yes, indeed. And of course, there's there's questions about oversight and folks are getting involved. That's always a good thing when we're getting more participation in these types of programs. And Todd, I, I want to ask you, look out a little bit more long term. We do have the two big cases pending before the Supreme Court, Proposition 12 from California and, of course, the Sackett case from Idaho. On Prop 12 or the Sackett, have there been any changes uh, to their status here before the Supreme Court? Uh, no, we're we're headed toward oral arguments. Uh, I believe in October they're within a, a week of each other. I believe one is October third and one's October eleventh. And usually the the court takes about three to four months to decide a case. Uh, the Prop Twelve case is is huge. The Sackett case is huge. I mean, we're dealing with Clean Water Act and we're dealing with uh, interstate commerce when it comes to pork. Um, giant cases. I would say that out of uh, all the ag cases that have come before the court. These two are uh, as big as it gets. And so uh, we're just going to wait and see. The oral arguments, like I said, will be in, in October, and, uh, and we wait a while. That's right. And in the meantime, the prep is going on. I know a lot of the interested parties are filing their briefs. They're filing their petitions with the Supreme Court in support or in opposition to both of these things as they prepare to go before the Supreme Court. Todd, it is going to be a big fall for ag cases there uh, with SCOTUS, isn't it? Yeah, this I think uh, you know in particular that I think the one the one case I think the Sackett case when it comes to the Clean Water Act is rather interesting because we're in the middle of a of a WOTUS rulemaking uh, or at least the process of of writing a new rule um, and that case could could in some way determine whether uh, that particular rulemaking continues. I mean, there's just a lot that 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 particular case may or may not answer on that front. And then, of course, we've got the pork, you know, going into California. Um, you know, we have a lot of a lot of questions about whether uh, consumers in California will even be able to access pork. And so, uh, yeah, they're both very big. The Clean Water Act case in particular, though, I think is going to have a lot of attention. I think you are right about that, Todd. We look forward to getting your insight as these cases move through the legal system. Folks, we've been talking to Todd Neely of DTN. Todd, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with ag economist David Widmer when we return about how corn usage trends have been developing in recent history. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, 
Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, 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 we are are the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are kicking off an all-new program called The Monthly Grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 12th for a big kickoff. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will share all of the details surrounding The Monthly Grind. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 12th. It's a show you don't want to miss. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40 plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nast.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. It's been our legacy year after year, and we're proud of our heritage. At FS, our focus has been on improving growers' profitability by developing leading products and services to advance operations. Year after year, we've been committed to pointing the way forward. So visit fssystem.com, and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, 
Visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, tomorrow at 11 o'clock in the morning, Central Time, USDA will be releasing two very closely watched reports. We'll be watching for the final planted acreage report from USDA detailing the acres of crops that got into the ground this past spring. And we'll also be watching for the quarterly grain stocks report. And of course, quarterly grain stocks is a measure of the grain that's out there in the countryside still waiting to be used. And of course, it's a measure of corn usage, how much corn is being demanded by end users across the value chain. I got thinking about this because I saw an article written here just a few days ago by David Widmer. He's an economist and managing partner at Agricultural Economic Insights, or AEI, and he was digging into corn usage. So I figured it was time we have this discussion here on the show. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, David, we got you on the line there. Yeah, great to join you today. Hey, perfect. Appreciate it. Want to talk to you about demand destruction. David, we have corn prices climbing six, seven, touching $8 a bushel. Is that causing end users to step back on their corn usage? What did you research? Well, you know, as you mentioned, the quarterly stocks report is kind of our, our ground truthing to how much is being used out there. And we saw some headlines. And, you know, as economists, we're kind of waiting for this this destruction to happen. It's the other part of the cure for high prices is high prices. So when we look at the data, on one hand, you know, usage is only a few percentage points off for, for corn for the 2022-23 marketing year, the crop in the ground. The USDA's estimates only a couple percentage points off the, the previous high. But when you step back and look at the trend over time, we saw this kind of concerning trend where usage has been sluggish over the last few years. In fact, we're starting to pile up uh, a bit of a, a destruction story over the last few years. You know, David, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned there that the usage is off only a few percentage points, because when you're tracking usage, you can't just look at it like a snapshot, right? It is always changing. It's always growing. How can you determine whether or not things are changing from a baseline? Well, Mike, it's just like the problem with yield. You know, is 177, which is the biggest number we've ever planted, what does that look like in the grand scheme of history? And it's actually a below-trend yield number. And what happens is over time, we have upward trends in things like yield and usage. So it makes it really hard to make meaningful comparisons. So, you know, a, a 14.8 billion bushel crop uh, at some point is an all-time record high usage. But over time, it kind of gets wore down and it's not as, you know, it could be average and below average what we do like we with usage like we do with yields is we do a trend line through the last 22 years of data going back to 2000 and we look at the deviations from that trend line and say okay this is a year with really strong usage we were well above the trend line and this is a year with really weak usage and what we saw is you know the biggest the biggest rationing we saw of course was 2012 1.8 billion bushels below the trend line because of that drought but the second biggest on a bushel basis was actually this year, 2022, we're a billion bushels off. And so we're starting to see this big gap between the trend line where, you know, if we just didn't know anything about the year, we just projected out blindly uh, into the future and where we actually are. That billion bushel usage is, is, is starting to be significant. And I think it's reflective of, you know, the last few years, we've had strong commodity prices, a lot of uncertainty around trade in, you know, the future commodity prices. And we're starting to see that pile up in the data. We are. And David, I'm glad you mentioned that that potential 1 billion bushel drop in usage. Is this a continuation of a trend that's been developing? Have high prices in 21, 22? Did that impact usage last year? It, it, it seems like it. You know, so we have this situation where we've been hanging around around 14.6, 14.8 billion bushels of, of, of usage for the last, you know, three years. And in general, we expect corn uses to increase at about 250 million bushels every year. And so we had this situation where we 
We hit the line three years ago. We've stayed near the at the same level, but the line's been growing, and we haven't been able to see growth. It's sort of three years of no growth that's starting to put us behind this eight ball. And I'll I'll know we we wrote about this in another article about soybeans. Soybeans are doing really well this year. They're above the trend line, and as you might expect, wheat is is also had the second biggest departure from trend line to the downside. So it's a destruction story in wheat and corn. Soybeans has a it's a pretty positive story here. David, given that it's a destruction story that has been developing now for a little over a year, do you anticipate us uh, seeing this on display tomorrow in that quarterly grain stocks report? So part of this is the USDA's, you know, already capturing this. This is part of the situation. But what it represents for the report tomorrow is there, you know, there could be a potential surprise. And what makes this so hard, what makes high prices, whether it's in commodities, or whether it's in the broad U.S. economy, something economists call elasticities, and not everything responds the same way. Uh, and so that, the challenge with these high prices we've seen over the last six months is we're trying to figure out which end users are able to find substitutes or able to make adjustments and which ones are able to still afford to do it profitably to feed this corn or to crush this corn and make ethanol. So there's a lot of uncertainty about the elasticity and what consumers are able to do over the last quarter or over the last six, nine months, given these high prices. Producers are trying to, end users are trying to respond and, and offset this. And some can and some can't. That is the truth. That is always going to be the struggle. Do you have a guess on tomorrow's quarterly grain stocks, David, or are we just watching to see what the numbers print? You know, that's a, a great question. And, and we always encourage, uh, you know, producers thinking about, you know, what's the probability of this coming in uh, of, of this stock report being tighter or showing stocks tighter than what we anticipated or being, um, you know, a bit uh, more ample than what I initially participated in. And I don't really have a crystal ball there. I'd say I'm about 50-50. That's maximum uncertainty uh, going into this report. And the reason why I think there's so much uncertainty is just given how much uh, prices change and how we have, we're going to see adjustments. It's just how soon we see those adjustments. How soon do they hit the supply chain? That is the question, folks. We've been talking to David Widmer of AEI. You can find Agricultural Economic Insights at AEI.ag. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We are going to be talking to Steve Mercer about transgenic wheat. We hope to see you then for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support, to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org.